0: First, just a quick announcement. I wish now to announce that I will not be a candidate for re-election. This decision is made easier by the fact that I can feel my conduct of the presidency, to which I came in such a tragic hour of national rending, has not been without some solid accomplishment, thanks to the grace of God and the sturdy cooperation of the American people. That's Lyndon Johnson's statement that he won't be running
1: for re-election. Lady Bird read it into her diary in the spring of 1964. He never did give that speech. In fact, he didn't write it. Not a word of it. Lady Bird did. I hope he won't use it, but that's that. When I was working in the Johnson archives in Austin, Texas, I found a file marked very simply, letters, Lady Bird Johnson to Lyndon Johnson. It's been sitting in the LBJ library since the 1970s. It's a pretty well-known fact that LBJ got cold feet right before the Democratic Convention in August of 1964. But in that box of letters, I found a bigger story. In May of that year, just five months after John F. Kennedy was assassinated, thrusting LBJ into the presidency, Lady Bird is laying out for Lyndon something much more consequential than whether or not he's going to run in the fall. From Best Case Studios and ABC Audio, this is in plain sight. I'm Julia Zweig. This season, I'm looking at Lady Bird Johnson and the untold story of her political partnership with one of the most complicated presidents of modern times. Oh, how time flies
2: with crystal clear eyes.
1: episode two. Thank you, Mrs. Vice President.
0: Thursday, May 14th. Virginia in mid-May is balm for any troubles. No silent spring here. The green arch of fresh spring leaves almost met over the rutted country road. Occasionally, you would see a bright little chipmunk perched on a rail fence.
1: It's been a bad week in Washington. Lady Bird finds herself in the rare and uncomfortable position of being the subject of some pretty scathing press. So she's fled D.C. to get out of the spotlight and come to Huntland, an estate in Middleburg, Virginia, about an hour outside of Washington. LBJ and Lady Bird had made high-profile tours of Appalachia, focusing mainly on poor whites for one of the administration's first initiatives, its war on poverty and they've courted massive press coverage, TV, radio, and print.
3: Mrs. Johnson continues the president's attack on poverty as she travels to the economically depressed areas of Eastern Kentucky. The 45 counties making up this area present one of the nation's worst pictures of poverty. Several times, Mrs. Johnson halts her motorcade to greet local school children who have gathered along the roadside.
1: Lady Bird has been a public face for this, and up until now, the media has loved her. There's actually no vice president at the moment because LBJ was the VP under Kennedy, and according to the Constitution, there's no automatic replacement for him. LBJ is going to announce a running mate at the convention in August, but the press corps traveling with the first lady has started referring to her as Mrs. Vice President. How serious is that? I don't know, not very, but they've clearly picked up on something real about the way she works with Lyndon. In a typical piece, an editorial in the Lexington Herald in Kentucky asks, Why not an LBJ and LBJ ticket? Look no farther, Lyndon. Your big problem of a running mate for this fall is now solved. It's none other than that charming Texan, Lady Bird Johnson. Lady Bird laughs it off. But
0: all this recognition has also made her a target. Read the papers and absorbed the shock of the two Republican congressmen's visit to my tenants in Otago County.
1: A couple of GOP congressmen decide to take their own poverty tour to Alabama, where Lady Bird has almost 4,000 acres used for cotton and timber farming that she inherited from her mother's family. The congressmen go see Lady Bird's tenants and put out some grainy black and white photos showing their ramshackle conditions. Tin roof shacks with collapsing foundations, no running water. Basically, she's being made to look like a slumlord And those optics, as
0: they say in politics, are terrible. It was ugly. It could have been worse. I've got to think of some way to turn it into a constructive end. Lady
1: Bird's been in public life for decades, and she's savvy about the press. She understands the story could deal them real political damage. So her first constructive step was to avoid the press by getting out of town. That's what's brought her to Huntland. Back in Washington, Lyndon's really struggling. His civil rights bill is stuck in Congress. His war counsel, Dean Rusk, McGeorge Bundy, and Robert McNamara, all holdovers from Kennedy, are pressing
0: him on Vietnam. And he has a raging toothache. When I was almost asleep, a little after 12, he called me. It was a sad, happy talk, largely about the Alabama tenants and about his restive desire to seek a way out of the burdens he carries
1: but the real source of his pain, he's actually thinking about not running in November. Lyndon is fundamentally insecure. He knows he wasn't elected, that he's just there because Kennedy was assassinated. He doesn't believe he has a mandate and he doesn't think he can win, despite an approval rating of 74%. You could argue that this is all in his head, but part of him, a big part, just wants out. Lady Bird invited LBJ's two longtime doctors to drive out to Huntland for dinner. Lyndon had a major heart attack at Huntland almost 10 years ago in 1955. It's never really out of mind for either of them. So at dinner that night with the doctors,
0: she'd heard what they thought about his fitness. They were going to give him a thorough medical going over the next morning. And tonight, we only talked about the psychological aspects. I don't know, though, that either one really understands the depth of his pain, when and if he faces up to the possibility of sending many thousands American boys to Vietnam.
1: Both Lady Bird and Lyndon can see the writing on the wall. Vietnam could easily derail his presidency, their ambitions for civil rights, the sweeping Great Society programs he's just laid out. Before his doctors leave to go back to Washington, Bird hands them an envelope marked personal, but its contents are political, too. On the phone the night before,
0: Lyndon had asked her to set out the pros and cons. I wrote out for Lyndon about a nine-page analysis of what I thought his situation was.
1: First, she types out that press release. It's a bit of psychology. This is what it would feel like to announce you're not running. Then, on a spiral-bound steno pad, Lady Bird writes those nine pages, laying out his options. This letter, or what I think is more accurately her strategy memo, has been sitting at the LBJ library forever, pretty much overlooked by historians. When I came across it, and then tracked Bird's diaries for the rest of LBJ's presidency, I could see how important it really was. She can't know what's coming— just how much Vietnam or urban riots or 60s counterculture or assassinations or black power or campus protests would rock the country and the White House. In May of 1964, Byrd tells Lyndon that the pros outweigh the cons.
0: I think he ought to run facing clearly all the criticisms and hostilities that will come our way. And then, some three years and nine months from now, in February or March of 1968, announced that he won't be a candidate for re-election. Now, I have to
1: stop here for a sec. On March 31st, 1968, that's about four years from now, LBJ will shock the nation with the announcement that he's not running for re-election. Everyone assumes then, and this is how it's been written about for years— It's the quagmire of Vietnam, the political challenge posed by Bobby Kennedy. All these factors have convinced Lyndon that the country's not behind him anymore. But he'd actually been sticking to the plan he'd made four years earlier with his closest advisor, Lady Bird. In the spring of 64, the Johnson administration is facing two big issues the two big issues that will define LBJ's presidency. We still feel their impact today. First, there's civil rights and the violent backlash against it, as reported by News of the Day.
2: In the
3: industrial city of Birmingham, Alabama, the bombing of the motel headquarters of the integrationist movement touched off a wave of violence that, spreading through the city, caused injuries to at least six persons and the burning of an apartment house at a half a dozen small stores.
1: Up until now, the Democratic Party is the dominant political force in the South. But civil rights is opening a major rift. Eighteen Democrats and one Republican, all from Southern states, mount a 60-day filibuster, the longest in the history of the Senate, to try to derail LBJ's civil rights legislation aimed at desegregating the South.
3: What do you think about this Vietnam thing? I'd like to hear
2: you talk a little bit.
1: Then, there's Vietnam. Georgia Senator Richard Russell, LBJ's longtime mentor, is pretty sure it's nothing but trouble.
3: It's the damn worst mess I ever saw, and I don't like to brag, but I knew we were going to get in this sort of mess when we went in there, and I don't see how I was going to ever get out of it.
1: You could look to any number of turning points for both civil rights and the war, but the summer of 64 is when the Johnsons make a political choice that affects both. To gather support for civil rights, they'll have to satisfy the Cold War hawks who are pushing for a stronger show of force in Vietnam. It's an election year, and Senator Barry Goldwater, that tough-talking GOP candidate for president, is gaining ground.
3: I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. Our Republican cause is to free our people and light the way for liberty throughout the world.
1: The U.S. has been sending so-called military advisors to Vietnam for the past three years, 16,000 of them by the end of 63, more than 300 dead in the past year, and rising fast.
0: Thursday, July 2nd, Lucy's 17th birthday. 17th was a very special year with me, the year when I began falling in love with somebody new each April. And now Lucy, at 17, is a real beauty. July 2nd is also the anniversary of LBJ's heart attack at Huntland, the one that almost killed him. For the first few years, we passed those milestones, stepping softly with great trepidation. Now we act almost as though it had not been, though Lyndon and I will not forget.
1: It's a personal reminder that time is short. LBJ's father died of heart failure at age 60, an uncle at 57. LBJ? is 56. But it's also an historic day.
3: The Civil Rights Act of 1964 is signed at the White House by President Johnson. Before an audience of legislators and civil rights leaders who had labored long and hard for passage of the bill, President Johnson calls for all Americans to back what he calls a turning point in history.
0: I had particularly noticed the attorney general sitting on the front row and wondered what was going on in his mind. Reading through all of her diaries,
1: certain people show up again and again. Bobby Kennedy, the attorney general, is one of them. Lady Bird comes back to Bobby over and over, like she's
0: trying to figure him out. I watched the attorney general's impassive face and the very measured clapping of his hands, which would not have disturbed a gnat sleeping calmly in his palm. It's the July 4th weekend.
1: Riding high on this landmark civil rights achievement, the Johnsons board their Jetstar and fly to the ranch, landing at midnight. And into bed with one of those nights
0: that does not think about tomorrow. A wonderful sense of euphoria rarely attained.
1: Man, do the Johnsons know how to play. They spend the weekend hiking, hunting, boating, sunbathing, swimming, water skiing, visiting family, napping, and driving around the ranch. They host a fish fry. And Lady Bird sneaks in her favorite television show, Gunsmoke.
3: Gunsmoke, starring James Arness as
2: Matt Dillon.
1: And it's a gorgeous time of year. Peacocks and peahens roam around their house, the zinnias in full bloom. Live oak trees, cattle, cactus and deer, granite and limestone,
0: big blue sky. It was a second blissful day in the only real vacation we've had since November the 22nd. That's the day
1: Kennedy was killed seven months ago. Texas Governor John Connolly was severely wounded that day. He and his wife Nellie are with them at the ranch this weekend, and Bird notes that he's just starting to use his right hand again. They talk about the convention, which is a month away, and LBJ's options for the VP slot. Two of us
0: there were for McCarthy, six were for McNamara. They pretty much all agreed that Humphrey would be their third choice, although they have not forgotten the South's antipathy for him. A rare and perfect day, and what a joy to look over at Lyndon and see how he was loving it. But it doesn't last. Monday, July 6, the golden days begin to tarnish. Lyndon asks her to come with him on a ride
1: out to a special spot on the ranch. Under the big sky, surrounded by immense granite boulders, it's a place where Lyndon goes to clear his mind. And what's on
0: his mind? His presidency. There was much talk of the big question. He wants to get out. There is no way out. Tuesday, August 4th, was a momentous day and yet so many perfectly ordinary things happened in it. You know, great decisions are being shaped, some completely beyond the control of any of us, some that have to be decided by the man closest to me, and yet you go right along doing necessary and frequently rather trivial things.
3: Our government is united in its determination to take all necessary measures in support of freedom and in defense of peace in Southeast Asia. This is the Maddox, one of the two destroyers that were attacked while patrolling international waters in the Gulf of Tonkin near North Vietnam. The lights burned all night in the White House as President Johnson conferred with his advisors, and he went before the nation to report on the crisis.
1: The tension in the White House is palpable. The Joint Chiefs, McNamara, Rusk, Bundy, and members of Congress, including Barry Goldwater, are in and out of the Oval Office. And where's Lady Bird? Well, she's on the roof of the White House in a swimsuit, sunbathing.
0: I can relax at the most amazing times, almost as though you'd have to wake me up in order to get me to the execution on time. But she's also working. She's
1: got her Mexican straw bag full of papers, maybe distracting herself from what she knows is being decided downstairs. McGeorge Bundy is one of LBJ's advisors who Lady Bird likes best he and the rest of the national security team have
0: just had their weekly lunch with the president. They stayed a very long time. As Mac George Bundy passed me in the hall, as they were leaving after lunch, it was looking extraordinarily grave. It left me thinking we might have a small war on our hands. And then, that night, the big event of the day, the state dinner for you thought. The
1: White House dinner that night in honor of Burmese diplomat U Thant, the U.N. Secretary General, is a who's who of Washington. Adlai Stevenson, LBJ's ambassador to the U.N., congressional heavyweights, governors in contention for the VP slot. Walter Cronkite and ABC News anchor Howard K. Smith are there. Even Gregory Peck
0: shows up. I wore my yellow chiffon gown with the beaded bodies, I felt that I looked rather well with all the white and yellow of the room. The menu features crabmeat surprise,
1: Chateaubriand house, something called puree favorite, and for dessert, in honor of the secretary general, Copelia Outhant, a coffee parfait
0: mold with whipped cream. Yep, they keep records of this stuff. After the toast, we went back into the East Room for the entertainment, which was the folk singers, Peter, Paul, and Mary. They were Lady Bird's choice.
1: Just a year earlier, they'd performed Bob Dylan's Blown in the Wind at the March on Washington. Now, they're at the White House, playing it to celebrate the Civil Rights Act.
4: How many deaths will it take till he knows that too many people have died? The answer, my friend, is blowing
0: I love Dorothy McArdle's description of them.
1: Lady Bird quotes from the New York Times Society page writer who attended
0: the dinner. Peter Yarra and Paul Stuckey with their slim bearded faces looked like minor modern prophets, and Mary in an empire crepe gown fashioned with puff sleeves with her long and even golden chopped bangs looking like a slightly rakish princess. It's Lady Bird's favorite song of the night. The song echoed the concern for these troubled times. The plaintive words, how many deaths will it take till he knows that too many people have died? How many years must some people exist before they're allowed to be free? She mixes up the lyrics
1: a little, combining the song's protest of both war and injustice. LBJ's presidency in a nutshell.
0: A very haunting song.
3: From Atlantic City, New Jersey, ABC News presents Politics 64.
1: At the Democratic convention, it's four days of speeches, politics, and
3: partying. This convention city by the sea bustled with political activity today. The coming nomination of Lyndon Johnson for a full term in the White House has even less suspense than the outcome of last year's World Series.
1: Delegates, press, protesters, and performers are all over the sweltering convention floor. Carol Channing, who's starring on Broadway this season in Hello, Dolly, reworks a song from the show to welcome the nominee. Hello, Linda.
2: Well, hello, Linda.
3: It's what has been called a one-man convention, and everyone is already on his bandwagon.
1: News of the day may believe everyone's on the LBJ bandwagon, but LBJ? On day two of the convention, he's still in Washington, not sure he's going to go. He calls his aide and confidant of 25 years, Walter Jenkins.
3: I really, I, I do not believe, Walter, that I can physically and mentally carry the responsibilities of the bomb and uh, the world and uh, the Negroes and uh, the South and so on and so forth. I know my own limitations. I just don't believe that I have the strength.
1: Walter calls Lady Bird.
3: This time,
1: she doesn't have the over. time or patience to write a nine-page memo. Beloved, she writes to Lyndon. To step out now would be wrong for your country, and I can see nothing but a lonely wasteland for your future. Your friends would be frozen in embarrassed silence and your enemies jeering.
3: Ladies and gentlemen of this convention, it is my privilege to place in nomination the name of one American to whom all can pledge support, in whom all can place confidence, a great leader of his party and his people, the president, Lyndon Baines Johnson.
1: It's the last day of the convention when Bobby Kennedy takes the stage to deliver a kind of eulogy for his fallen brother, JFK. And
3: now it is my privilege and honor to introduce The man who stood closer to him in times of crisis and in times of fun than anyone else, his brother, Robert Kennedy.
1: But first, he'll get a 22-minute standing ovation before he even says a word.
2: Mr. Chairman, Mr. Chairman, I wish to speak, uh, just for a few moments. I realize that as an individual, and even more importantly, for a political party and for the country, that we can't just look to the past, but we must look to the future.
1: Bobby brings down the House, and as he tells the party delegates to look to the future, it's not hard to read between the lines and imagine where Bobby sees himself. Bird recognizes that Bobby has qualities, things like youth, beauty, away
0: with words, that her husband simply lacks. Actually, in cold fact, we need many of the things that Bobby Kennedy has and represents and is able to attract.
1: Bobby's allies have even approached the LBJ team about Bobby becoming the VP. But that's actually too close for comfort for LBJ. He goes with Minnesota Senator Hubert Humphrey.
4: We're with you
2: all the way. We're with you all the way. We're with you all the way, LBJ. And we send this word to you. We're gonna see it through. We're with
1: you. When the Civil all Rights Act passed, LBJ. LBJ told his young press secretary Bill Moyers, I think we just delivered the South to the Republican Party for a very long time to come. And Goldwater is gaining traction in states that have traditionally voted for Democrats. But Byrd didn't want to see LBJ lose the South by default.
2: Mrs. Carpenter, what's the main purpose of this trip as far as Mrs. Johnson's concerned? (laughs) Lady Bird,
1: Press Secretary Liz Carpenter, and Lindy Boggs, wife of a Louisiana congressman, organize a four-day, eight-state whistle-stop tour of the Deep South. Well, Marlene,
2: obviously, there's an election on, and she's helping carry the story of this administration and of her husband's record to big cities, small towns, the byroads, and the crossroads. No one knows the story better than Mrs. Johnson. Dear. Won't you take me by the and you could lead us all the way to the
1: land. Bird spends an afternoon calling the governors and senators of each of the eight
0: states she plans to visit. The most hilarious call, probably, was to Senator Strom Thurmond.
1: Thurmond is the conservative senator from South Carolina. And jarring by today's standards, he's a Democrat at the time
0: and a devoted segregationist. I quickly gave my reasons for the call. And I would be proud and happy to have him by my side when I went through the state of South Carolina. But Thurmond isn't having any of it. Senator Thurmond said he had to make a very basic decision within the next two weeks. And though he thanked me very much, he must regret. In fact,
1: He's just five days away from announcing that he's flipping parties and will support Goldwater. Thurman spends the next 39 years in the Senate as a staunch Republican and relentless opponent of integration and civil rights. And he's not even her toughest nut to crack.
0: There was no use in calling Governor Wallace, not even for courtesy's sake.
1: Alabama Governor George Wallace
3: is probably the most outspoken, diehard opponent of civil rights. And I'm tired of both national parties, and both national parties joined together in the American Congress to pass the infamous so-called civil rights bill that has destroyed the liberty and freedom of the people of this state. and it's taken all a- the
1: progress with legislation, civil rights is facing a backlash, especially in the South, and it's growing more violent.
3: In the evening, rioting broke out in downtown St. Augustine as about 500 angry whites crashed through police lines and attacked Negro demonstrators.
1: One of the first stops on Ladybird's tour is Richmond, Virginia.
0: Richmond is truly a barometer
2: of the new South.
1: Goldwater is gaining ground here. Ladybird is greeted by a banner that says, Fly away, Ladybird. Here in Richmond, buries the cat's meow. Okay, it's not a warm welcome, but it's hardly threatening.
0: Probably you and other people are wondering why I made this trip. I am here on behalf of the Democratic Party, the party of your ancestors and mine.
1: But as her train moves south, there's a growing air of menace. In Columbia, South Carolina, Liz Carpenter and the advance team land at the airport in the early afternoon and notice a carload of six men in shirt sleeves. They sat silent, sullen, and stared at us, Liz wrote in her memoir. I had an eerie feeling I was seeing the face of hate. White supremacist groups have infiltrated the crowd, yelling, Johnson is a communist. They carry signs saying things like, Blackbird, go home. It's the least offensive of their racial epithets, and it gives Lady Bird just a taste of the hate, the everyday racism Black people face in the South.
0: My friends, this is a country of many viewpoints, and I respect your right to express your own. Now, it's my turn to express mine.
1: The Alabama-Florida border at this time is one of the most violent areas of the Deep South. Sheriffs by day wear the robes and hoods of the Klan by night. When we talk about Jim Crow, you think of the whites-only bathrooms and water fountains, access to voting booths, where you can sit on a bus. This is what the Civil Rights Act was supposed to tackle. But what kept Jim Crow in place all those years? Violence and the threat of violence. Civil rights activist Julian Bond talked to the British show Panorama about the everyday atmosphere of intimidation that Black people face in the South.
2: What they do makes people who live in small towns in the South, Negroes, much more afraid to register to vote, much more afraid to even speak to us on the street, and the type of terror and violence
3: that Negroes and civil rights workers face almost daily in the South.
1: On October 8th, Lady Bird gets ready to head to her next campaign stop in Tallahassee, Florida. But before her train pulls out, the Secret Service gets an anonymous tip of a bomb threat. Bomb-sniffing dogs sweep a bridge she's supposed to cross. A dummy train travels ahead. Helicopters and boats escort the First Lady's train across the border. While Lady Bird's out campaigning, back in Washington, there's been an arrest. It's October 14th, 21 days before the election. Liz Carpenter gets a call from Charlie Sybe, an editor at the Washington Star. Charlie's a friend from when they both worked as reporters in Philadelphia. He's calling now about a so-called morals charge that's shown up on a local police blotter. The report names Walter Jenkins, Lyndon's aide and confidant of more than 25 years. He's being charged with disorderly indecent gestures at a local YMCA. In the code of the era, that's homosexual behavior. In the presidential suite at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York, Lyndon takes a call from his lawyer Abe Fortas and Clark Clifford, an advisor. There's a quote, "Weird situation." The men tell LBJ. Lyndon is stunned by the news.
2: You know, Abe, I just—I swear, I just can't believe. What's this going to do? there. Uh, I think we're. We'll
1: Fortas says it's very likely that the Republicans know about the story. The only question is what they'll do with it. Fortas and Clifford recommend they keep a lid on this thing. Get The Star and other news outlets to kill the story. Admit Walter Jenkins to George Washington University Hospital. The president, if asked, will say only that he is aware that Jenkins has been admitted to the hospital for hypertension and nervous exhaustion. It's old school damage control. Back in the White House the next morning, Lady Bird calls LBJ up in New York. She's got a plan too, and it's a different approach.
2: I would like to do two things about Walter. I would like to offer him the number two job at KTBC. Do you hear me? KTBC
1: is the Johnson's television station in Austin. LBJ, not on board.
2: I wouldn't do anything along that line now.
1: But Lady Bird knows they're not going to be able to hide from this thing.
2: I, I don't think that's right. When questioned, and I will be questioned, I'm going to say that this is incredible for a man that I've known all these years, a devout Catholic, the father of six children, a happily married husband. It can only be a small nervous breakdown.
1: LBJ? would rather stick to his lawyer Abe Fortas's plan.
2: I wouldn't say anything because it's not something you to get involved in now. Whatever you do, don't do anything right. Talk to Clark and Abe.
1: Ladybird has actually gotten ahead of that.
2: All right, uh, Abe approves of the job offer. Abe approves of the statement. What? She's already called both of them. Abe approves of the job offer. Sorry. Abe approves of such a statement when questioned. Well, talk to Clark. I must say that Clark does not approve of the latter.
1: Neither does the president.
2: I don't see any reason to know publicly, because then you
3: confirm it, you approve it, you're part of it, everything else. You just can't do that to the presidency,
2: honey. I don't think you realize the First Lady should be doing it.
1: Politicians at the time, and lots of historians, have talked about the Johnson treatment. LBJ's signature mix of persuasion, flattery, and intimidation that helped him get things done in Washington. Well, Lady Bird has her own version. She's already decided what she's going to do about Walter Jenkins. She's just gently maneuvering the president along.
2: My poor darling, my heart breaks for you too. I pray for you along with Walter. You're a brave, good guy. And if, if you read where I've said some things in Walter's support, they'll be along the line that I've just said to you.
1: By the end of this long call, which screws up his busy schedule and makes him late, Lady Bird has brought LBJ on board. In the end, Lady Bird issues a public statement. It's compassionate, supportive, essentially the heads up she gave to LBJ. Her political instinct was to get ahead of it and neutralize the scandal. And when the story breaks, despite Abe and Clark's fears, Goldwater doesn't touch it.
3: An overwhelming mandate is handed to Lyndon Baines Johnson. The man who was thrust into office through the hand of tragedy captures an overwhelming percentage of the popular vote over Barry Morris Goldwater of nearly 16 million ballots.
1: Lyndon Johnson's elected in a landslide. But LBJ was right about civil rights and the South. Democrats do manage to hang on to Virginia, North Carolina, and Florida but they lose the other five states where Lady Bird campaigned. CBS's Roger Mudd frames the outcome. The times are changing, just not always the way you'd want them to.
3: Barry Goldwater was the closest thing to a straight-out white supremacy states' rights candidate Dixie has had since Strom Thurmond swept through there 16 years ago. And the Deep South went for Goldwater last night in about the same proportions. My fellow
0: Americans, This is a night of high excitement, a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And my thoughts are turning to all the people who've made it possible. May I say my heartfelt thanks. Go with those of my husband. And we'll try to make you feel that it was worth your while. Thank you.
1: coming up on In Plain Sight. It was a whirlwind romance for Lady Bird and Lyndon.
0: I do believe before the day was over, he did ask me to marry him, and I thought he was just out
1: of his mind. LBJ's inauguration is a day of incredible highs.
3: For the first time, a president's wife holds the Bible as Mr. Johnson is sworn in.
0: Followed immediately by unbelievable lows. Quiet little Selma, Alabama, dominating the news. The marches led by the Reverend King. The fight for civil rights is heating up.
2: The marchers are now backed up over the bridge. That's
1: coming up next on In Plain Sight, Lady Bird Johnson. In Plain Sight was written and executive produced by Adam Pincus and me, Julia Swig. It's based on the work I did for my book, Lady Bird Johnson Hiding in Plain Sight. Executive producers for ABC are Victoria Thompson and Eric Johnson. Our producer is Anne Carkey. Ali Gallo is our associate producer. Susie Liu is ABC's Archival producer. Associate producers for Archival are Isabel Dorval and Dana Schaefer. This episode was edited by Erica Heilman with additional editing by Vanessa Lowe and help from Lindsay Cradwell. It was mixed by Dean White. Our theme music is Crossbone Style by Cat Power. The song Look Out Mama is by Hooray for the Riff Raff. Original music is composed by Sam Retzer. Our music supervisor is Linda Cohen. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY. Special thanks to Kevin Pham at Best Case Studios. And thanks to Joshua Cohan, Liz Alessi, and Stacia Deshescu at ABC Audio, Mike Kelly and Beth Hoppy at ABC News Longform, and Ian Rosenberg and Kimberly Brown, who handled our legal and standards review. In Plain Sight is a co-production of Best Case Studios and ABC Audio. Some material was edited for clarity and time. Be sure to subscribe to the In Plain Sight podcast. And if you like what you heard, leave us a review. Listen to new episodes every Monday.